Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Have you heard you can listen to your favorite news podcasts ad-free? Good news. With Amazon Music, you have access to the largest catalog of ad-free top podcasts included with your Prime membership. To start listening, download the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts. That's amazon.com slash ad-free news podcasts to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Welcome to the Cynical Podcast, a weekly discussion of current affairs in China, produced in partnership with The China Project. Subscribe to Access from The China Project to get, well, access. Access to not only our great newsletter, The Daily Dispatch, but to all of the original writing on our website at thechinaproject.com. We've got reported stories, essays and editorials, great explainers, regular columns, and of course, a growing library of podcasts. We cover everything from China's fraught foreign relations to its ingenious entrepreneurs, from the ongoing repression of Uyghurs and other Muslim peoples in China's Xinjiang region, to Beijing's ambitious plans to shift the Chinese economy onto a post-carbon footing. It's a feast of business, political, and cultural news about a nation that is reshaping the world. We cover China with neither fear nor favor. I'm Kaiser Guo, coming to you from Chapel Hill, North Carolina. This week on Seneca, we've got something different for you. For over three years now, James Carter, he goes by Jay, has been writing a weekly column for the China Project called This Week in China's History. It's one of my very favorite things on our website, and I look forward to it every week, especially now since it is my job to record narrations of those columns for our China Stories podcast. If you look at Jay's bio at the bottom of the column, it says he's a professor of history at St. Joseph's University, uh, which is true. He's an historian. He still teaches. But actually, he's been promoted not once but twice in the three years he's been writing this column for us. First, to dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at St. Joseph's, and now, unbelievably, to provost of the university. Yep, we have the provost of a university still writing this wonderful column week in and week out for a little old us. And I get to read that column for you each week on China Stories. If you aren't already subscribing to China Stories, please take a moment and do that. We take great English language writing on China from partners like Sixth Tone, The World of Chinese, Caixin Global, and most recently, Rest of World. And we find volunteer narrators like Sarah Kudlakos, Cliff Larson, Kim Dalrymple, Mina Greb, Sylvia Franca, Elise Ribbons, and our own Anthony Tao, people who speak Chinese and will get the tones and the pronunciation right most of the time, uh, to record the pieces. We offer six or seven in a typical week, so there is always something good in your podcast feed. So for this week, I asked my colleague who runs, edits, and coordinates China Stories, Ivan Hanse, uh, who is just finishing up his master's degree at the University of Freiburg in Germany, and the wonderful Julia Klaus, also a Freiburg master's student, 
who helps out not only with China Stories, but also with the transcripts of this show. I asked him to, to put together a list of some of their favorites among Jay's columns that I had the privilege of narrating. I just love their picks, and I cannot thank them enough for the great work that they do. I also thought, hey, we are going to need some music for this. And since many people over the years have actually written to me to ask about the intro and outro music for Seneca, I thought I'd include some other snippets from my old band Chuncho or Spring and Autumn, uh, which I played in from 2001 to 2016, living in Beijing. These songs are all from our one and only album released in 2006. It's just Chuncho. You can find it on Spotify and on YouTube and all over the place. So enjoy these selections. See you next week with a really big interview with Yasheng Huang. And in the meantime, please, please subscribe to the China Stories podcast. See you soon. This week in China's history, July 7th, 1517. Not just a metaphor, dragons of imperial China show us how people lived. This column has mentioned the Huai River, a tributary of the Yellow River, several times, somewhat improbably for one of China's lesser-known watercourses. In those other cases, it was because of flooding in the 19th and 20th centuries. The Huai's other claim to prominence has to do with its intersection with the Grand Canal, causing some hydrological engineering feats to keep the river flowing. But in the summer of 1517, the area around the Grand Canal and the Huai River was noteworthy neither for flooding nor for grand infrastructure. According to the Ming Shilu, the veritable records of the Ming Dynasty, on July 7th, 1517, no fewer than nine dragons darkened the skies north of Nanjing. As described by historian Tim Brook in his History of the Yuan and Ming Dynasties, the nine sucked water from the Huai, creating a waterspout that pulled a canal boat from the river. A woman on board was spared injury when the dragon responsible set the boat down softly. A year later, dragons came again to worse effect. This time, Brooke writes, three fire-breathing dragons descended through the clouds over the Yangtze Delta and sucked two dozen boats into the sky. More than 300 houses were destroyed, and not only did many die falling from the sky, but even more perished from fright at just seeing the terrifying spectacle. And less than a year later, dozens of dragons engaged in an enormous battle in the skies over Lake Poyang, reprising one of Ming founder Zhu Yanzhang's greatest battles on his way to overthrowing the Yuan. The fight is said to have resulted in floodwaters that submerged several islands in the lake, never to reappear.
Of course, to most modern readers, the idea that dragons exist or existed at all is a non-starter, let alone the claim that they were responsible for water spouts, floodwaters, red rain, or any of the dozens of other phenomena laid at the winged serpent's clawed feet. But Tim Brooke is a serious historian, and he begins his volume in the prestigious Harvard History of Imperial China series with an entire chapter on dragons. What gives? As Brooke himself asks, do dragons belong in history? As you might imagine, he believes they do. The first chapter of the book is called Dragon Spotting, and is, according to his notes, a compilation of nearly 100 different dragon sightings from the Yuan and Ming, found in dynastic histories, local gazetteers, and other sources. Their importance is, to Brooke, obvious, and it has little to do with whether dragons were real or even if people writing about them believed in them. Whether the people of the Yuan and Ming believed in dragons is immaterial, he writes. They were observing phenomena that mattered to them, and if these events mattered to them, they should matter to us. A succinct explanation of historians' values. For the Chinese of the late imperial era, dragons were not to be doubted, though they were shrouded in mystery. Tracts were written trying to discern their origins, their physiology, their habitats, their eating habits. Do phoenixes feed on dragon brains? Are they born live or from eggs? How do we account for the fact that their ability to breathe fire suggests they have an extreme yang nature, while their constant appearance in rain and in flood suggests the very opposite, a powerful yin essence? The authors resign themselves to leaving many of the crucial questions unanswered until more evidence or smarter investigators could unlock some of the mysteries. The catalog of dragon sightings offers a range of spectacles, from the Yangtze Delta sightings that sucked up rivers and threw boats into the air, to fire breathers who scorched trees and monasteries, to beasts that threw up floods that drowned thousands or caused winds that leveled villages. Brooke runs through the typical ways moderns explain or explain away mythical creatures and how they apply to dragons. Mass hysteria? Metaphors for extreme weather? Both are certainly plausible, and it's not hard to see how a tsunami or a thunderstorm or a flash flood or a mudslide can be attributed to something supernatural. Even today, survivors of such extreme weather events are often reduced to metaphor or anthropomorphization when trying to explain their experience. Tornadoes often sound like freight trains. Hurricane winds scream through trees. Skies turn evil shades of green. Brooke is quick to note that even if we understand dragons to have really been bad weather, we can still make progress in understanding the Chinese past. Bad weather is a fundamental part of human existence, and the further back in time we go, the more essential weather and climate become for day-to-day -day survival and flourishing. Surely, weather and climate are as important to daily life as emperors and government officials, yet... History has usually preferred ideology to meteorology when looking to explain the past. If it takes dragons to help correct this, perhaps it is worth the suspension of disbelief. But Brooke suggests that there is something more in the fearsome antics of dragons in imperial China. The Yuan and Ming, he suggests, 
were difficult times. In contrast to earlier eras, autocracy and commercialization were now present to a degree that was qualitatively, not just quantitatively, different. Social practices diversified, cultural production took new forms and served new purposes. Philosophers discounted many of the assumptions that had grounded Confucian thought. It was a time of grave peril. Maybe that meant a mercurial and autocratic state, or maybe it meant a dragon. The people of the Yuan and Ming grasped bad weather quite as well as we do, Brooke writes, but when they saw a dragon, they saw more than bad weather. They saw a cosmic disturbance. For the emperor, atop an unwieldy hierarchy that both supported and constrained him, dragons were a threat. The emperor, as son of heaven, was meant to mediate between the natural and the supernatural. When dragons were becoming visible to regular folks, as they were in the Yuan and Ming, the supernatural was bypassing its usual channels, dangerous deviations from the usual course of events. On the other hand, an emperor who could control dragons could make a claim for their own legitimacy. The paranoid Hongwu emperor made such a claim. So did the last Ming emperor in the years before he ascended the throne, though such power did not protect him from his grim fate. The last official sighting of a dragon in China came in the 20th century, November 1905, just six years before the last emperor abdicated the dragon throne. In the 21st century, dragons are now reduced to a ubiquitous, often lazy metaphor for China in the popular press, and obviously not something real. But don't tell that to the folks near Nanjing in the summer of 1517, who watched as the beasts plucked boats from the Grand Canal and set them down just as easily, proving their power. This Week in China's History, February 22, 1784 The Empress of China and the Beginning of U.S.-China Trade New York City is in the midst of one of its mildest winters ever, with its latest first snow ever, and even that, just a dusting. Such was not the case in 1784, when an exceptionally cold February kept the Hudson River and much of the harbor frozen. Among the ships kept in port by the cold was a 360-ton schooner named the Empress of China. While her captain, John Green, waited anxiously, the mercury dipped below zero for days on end, according to historian Eric J. Dolan in his book, When America First Met China. Finally, Dolan records, the temperature rebounded, causing the ice to retreat, and on Sunday, February 22nd, as the sun rose in the brilliant blue sky and gentle winds tippled the surface of the water, the Empress of China cleared the wharf, and Green and his 42-man crew began the groundbreaking voyage, thus launching America's trade with China. As Dolan implies here, the vessel's name was no coincidence. 
The Empress's destination was Guangzhou, and the Empress was the first American vessel to undertake trade with China. George Washington's 52nd birthday was also the birth of the largest trading relationship that the world has ever known. Besides Green, her captain, the most important man aboard was Samuel Shaw, who, as supercargo, was responsible for the voyage's commercial aspects. This was Shaw's first trip to China, but it would not be his last. He would be the first diplomat to represent the United States in China, first as consul to Canton, now Guangdong Province, under the Articles of Confederation, and then, in 1792, as ambassador to China, again stationed at Canton. The Empress of China carried the commercial ambitions of the new nation. Not only was her journey officially chartered by the Continental Congress, but she had the financial backing of the most powerful men in the freshly united United States. As director of the Hong Kong Maritime Museum, a gem of the museum near the Stanley Market, Libby Chan Lai Pick put it in an interview, the backers of the Empress of China were all signatories of the Declaration of Independence. This was a private enterprise, but a national priority. Green and Shaw had filled their hold with some 30 tons of ginseng, native to North America and highly valued in China, as one of the few American products of interest to the Chinese, as well as otter pelts and cloth. Embarking on their journey around the world, with a 13-gun salute fired in New York Harbor, the Empress made its way east across the Atlantic to the Cape Verde Islands, then rounding the Cape of Good Hope and crossing the Indian Ocean. In July, near Jakarta, the ship stopped to take on supplies and joined a French vessel, the Triton, also en route to Canton. The Triton's captain offered to accompany the Empress of China the rest of the way, making their way through the South China Sea to the Pearl River estuary. On August 23rd, the Stars and Stripes flew in Chinese waters for the first time. A week later, Green, Shaw, and their crew dropped anchor at Canton. Shaw's journals survive, giving us insights to the experiences of the first Americans to work as such in China. Shaw details the Canton system at work, the divisions and jealousies among the various European states, the arrangements and accommodations particular to each of them, and the obligations and opportunities each pursued with and toward the Qing state. The day of our arrival at Canton, August 30th, Shot records, we were visited by the Chinese merchants and the chiefs and gentlemen of the several European establishments and treated by them in all respects as citizens of a free and independent nation. The Chinese themselves were very indulgent towards us, though ours being the first American ship that had ever visited China, it was some time before they could fully comprehend the distinction between us and Englishmen. The distinction between Americans and Englishmen turned out to be important, for the fall of 1784 was one of diplomatic intrigue. In November, a British gunner accidentally killed a Chinese vendor in what came to be known as the Lady Hughes Incident, and war was narrowly averted while America's first vessel to China lay at anchor. The Empress had been to China to develop trade, and upon arrival, it appears the opportunity was well received. Shah writes that Chinese officials 
styled us the new people, and when by map we conveyed to them an idea of the extent of our country with its present and increasing population, they were highly pleased at the prospect of so considerable a market for the productions of their empire. The Empress of China stayed in China for more than four months, finding buyers for the pelts, ginseng, and other wares she had brought from New York. The return voyage began nearly a year later. Empress of China left Canton on December 27, 1784, and arrived, to a hero's welcome, in New York on May 11, 1785. In her hold were 800 chests of tea and 20,000 pairs of Nankin trousers. The 25% return on investment was less than projected, but enough to lay the foundation for U.S.-China trade, now worth more than $550 billion. Shah reported on the journey's success. The first vessel that had been fitted out by inhabitants of the United States of America for essaying a commerce with those of the Empire of China to the Minister of Foreign Affairs, John Jay, in closing with the letter, two pieces of silk presented to me by the Fuin of Canton as a mark of his good disposition towards the American nation. Shaw continued, I consider myself as peculiarly honored in being charged with this testimony of the friendship of the Chinese for a people who may, in a few years, prosecute a commerce with the subject of that empire under advantages equal, if not superior, to those enjoyed by any other nation whatever. Jay responded some months later, reporting that Congress feels a peculiar satisfaction in the successful issue of this first effort of the citizens of America to establish a direct trade with China, which does so much to honor its undertakers and conductors. This week in China's history, November 2, 1861, the rise of Empress Dowager Cixi. Last month's party congress was noteworthy for many reasons, but one is that it demonstrated again that the senior leadership of the Communist Party in China is an exclusively male preserve. China is, of course, not alone in this. Currently, only about 10% of the world's nations have a female leader, with most countries having never had one, including the United States. A reminder that this is the 21st century, all of which is to say that in 19th century China, it was an extraordinary feat for a woman to attain political power. So it was in November of 1861 when the Empress Dowager Cixi, Cixi engineered a coup that brought her to the head of the Qing dynasty and saving it in many ways. To say China was in a crisis in 1861 puts it too gently. The Taiping rebels were at their strongest, claiming half of China from their capital in Nanjing. Two other rebellions, the Nian in the east and the Pante in the southwest, were at full throttle, taxing Qing armies to their limits and beyond. 
Treaties signed in 1858 and 1860 had ceded half a million square miles of Qing Manchuria and eastern Siberia to Russia. The Second Opium War had ended the year before, confirming the power of Europeans in China and leaving Beijing's grand old summer palace a smoldering ruin. Most of the royal family had fled the capital to escape the fighting, including the Xianfeng Emperor, whose leadership was as weak as his appetite for indulgence was strong. In mid-August, it became clear that the emperor, just thirty years old, was failing, and his heir was just six years old. The day before he died, the Xianfeng Emperor arranged for the succession to his child heir. An eight-person regency of generals and grand counselors, headed by the Manchu noble Su Xun, would supervise the affairs of government until the heir was ready to rule in his own right. Regencies were not controversial, and more than once, senior advisors had overseen Qing child emperors. Both the Xunzhi and Kangxi emperors had come to the throne before age ten, for instance. Facing internal rebellion, foreign invasion, a crumbling economy, and the prospect of a toddler on the throne, there was little cause for optimism about the dynasty's future. But one person took matters into her own hands, the emperor's mother. Although she would become the face of the Qing dynasty, caricatured in the West as the dragon lady for nearly half a century, the empress dowager Cixi had little claim to power in 1861. She had given birth to the heir, Zaichun, but she was not empress the title typically given to the emperor's chief consort. The chief consort was not always politically influential, but was generally the most important woman at court, and sometimes had the emperor's ear. In this transitional period, the empress, Empress Dowager Cixan, might wield more influence than usual. However, Cixi had become friends with Cixan and negotiated with her to see how they might gain power but the path to power would require more than just these two. In the months and years leading up to Shenfeng's death, Cixi cultivated relationships with several high-ranking officials, chief among them Prince Gong, also known as Yixin. Prince Gong's family had been left to negotiate with the French and British when the royal family fled to the summer residence in Ruhe and was widely seen as one of the most capable and ambitious nobles in the dynasty. That reputation notwithstanding, factionalism at court had left Prince Gung on the outs when Shenfeng had named the regents for his heir. It also left Prince Gung as an obvious ally for the marginalized Empress Dowager. In her biography of Cixi, Zhong Chang describes how Cixi invited Prince Gung to the summer residence against the wishes of the deceased emperor where she raised questions about the planning for a regency. The eight men who were appointed to oversee the young monarch had shown themselves to be spectacularly inept in their response to the foreign invasion of Beijing. Cixi arranged for Prince Gung to have a petition sent to the new regents suggesting that the two empresses dowager be given roles. When the regents, predictably, refused to entertain this new arrangement, Cixi confronted them, 
Cixan shied from public disagreements, leaving Cixi to conduct these meetings herself, further enhancing her power. Although Cixi formally acquiesced to the regent's insistence on observing the late emperor's wishes, in the process, she provoked the regents to raise their voices, frightening the toddler monarch. The breach of decorum would prove essential. Cixi used her familiarity with court protocol to advance her plans. The emperor had died several hundred miles from Beijing, and of course, his body had to be returned to the capital so that the proper funerary rites could be observed. Transporting an imperial corpse was no simple matter. It required an auspicious time. While the imperial astrologers settled on the right date to bring the body south, Cixi went ahead to make arrangements, ostensibly, to prepare for the funeral, but those were not the most important preparations in Beijing. In the capital, Cixi worked with both Prince Gong and one of Xianfeng's brothers, who had been similarly excluded from the regency. While Su Xun accompanied the funeral procession, Cixi and Prince Gong politicked, dividing the regent's allies and winning support for a new arrangement that would empower Cixan and Cixi with the support of Prince Gong and his allies. Cixi used the regent's abuse of the young emperor to discredit them with support from Prince Gong and Xianfeng's other brothers. Formally, they were charged with having bungled the negotiations with foreign powers and allowing both the invasion of the capital and the burning of the Yuanmingyue. In this version of events, the eight advisors had spirited the emperor away from Beijing against his will and imposed their desire that they be appointed regents. Soon, they were not just out of power. Su Xun was beheaded, considered a mercy in contrast to the death by a thousand cuts that some called for. Two others were given an offering of silk, a length of cloth, with which to hang themselves. The five who remained were sentenced to exile. On November 12, 1861, an imperial edict declared that all state matters will be decided personally by the two empresses dowager, who will give orders to the grand advisor and the grand counselors to carry them out. Not yet 26 years old, Cixi was the de facto ruler of China, and would remain so for nearly fifty years. Her position remained fraught with irony. When her son was coronated as emperor, she was not present because the ceremony took place in a part of the palace forbidden to women. Cixi's rise to power was not without controversy. Conservative officials, unhappy with a woman in control, portrayed her as ruthless and immoral. To maintain power, she moved swiftly against anyone who challenged her rule, including Prince Gung, who was removed as regent in 1865 and purged again in 1874. She ruled behind the scenes throughout the tumult of the late 19th century, but resumed control of the government when she felt that the Hundred Days Reforms of 1898 went too far and jeopardized the dynasty. Imprisoning her nephew, the Guangxu Emperor, she resumed her role as regent. When she died in 1908, just a day after the Guangxu Emperor, the Qing had just three years left to it. Cixi has endured much criticism for her role 
in the dynasty's decline, though others celebrate her as a reformer hemmed in by a patriarchy. Needless to say, a political career that spanned nearly half a century is complex, but Sashi's ability to navigate elite politics and rise to power in 1861 was a feat that, 150 years later, no woman has been able to replicate. This week in China's history, June 30th, 626. In the 7th century, a Chinese coup of Shakespearean proportions. At dawn on the fourth day of the sixth moon of the ninth year of the Wudo reign, July 2nd, 626 by Western reckoning, two Tong princes rode toward the palace to meet with their father, Emperor Gaozu. Rumors had been flying around the capital, Chang'an, accusing these two men of both personal and professional misconduct, and the emperor would get to the bottom of it. The entrance to the palace interior was through the Xuanwu Gate. As the two princes, Li Jiancheng, the heir apparent to the throne, and Li Yuanji approached, they perceived that something was amiss. Troops loyal to and led by their brother, Li Shimin, were lying in ambush at the gate. Shimin had started rumors that his brothers had slept with their father's concubines as revenge for a series of plots and slights against him, and at this very moment, the rivalry was coming to a head. In the account recorded by the Song historian Sima Guang and translated by UC Berkeley professor Woodridge Bingham, the son of Yale historian Hiram Bingham, who is credited with rediscovering the Inca capital Machu Picchu, Jiancheng and Yuanji recognized the trap at the last moment and wheeled their horses to flee. Shimin killed the crown prince Jiancheng with an arrow as they fled. Yuanji managed to escape the palace into the woods, followed by some seventy of Shimin's troops. Li Shimin himself pursued his surviving brother into the forest, where tree branches knocked both men to the ground. Yuanji gained the upper hand as Shimin lay on the ground, the wind knocked out of him. But before Yuanji could take advantage, two of Shimin's most loyal followers, Yu Shi Jingde and Qin Shubao, arrived on the scene. Yuanji fled on foot a short distance before Jingde overtook and killed him. For their loyalty and protection, Yu Shi Jingde and Qin Shubao, also known as Duke Zhongwu, and Duke Zhuang have been venerated ever since as door gods, protecting homes from evil spirits. During the pursuit of Li Yuanji, a battle between supporters of the various princes continued for some time until Jingde and Shu Bao appeared with the heads of the two murdered princes, which they mounted on the Xuanwu Gate. Jingde then entered the palace and approached the emperor, who had spent the morning sailing on one of the lakes within his palace. Bingham writes about the meeting of the two men, relayed from the Old Tong History, 
Zhou Tang Shu, with the emperor asking in alarm, Who is it that is disturbing the peace today, and why have they come here? In reply, Yu Shi Jingde stated that the heir apparent had disturbed the peace, and that Li Shimin had been compelled to execute him. To avoid worrying the emperor, Yu Shi Jingde was sent to guard him. Gaozu was given an offer he could not refuse. The Gaozu emperor had founded what was to be China's most powerful dynasty. His capital, Chang'an, who was probably the world's largest city, exceeded only and perhaps by Baghdad. Yet he now had few options. Two of his sons were dead, and the third now had a hostile army at the palace gates. Assessing the situation, Gaozu named Li Shimin his heir, and two months later, abdicated. Li Shimin ascended the throne as Emperor Taizong. Taizong went on to rule for 20 years, establishing himself as one of China's most powerful and successful emperors. He became, after initial misgivings, a sponsor of Buddhism, welcoming the monk Xuanzang back from his journey to the West, acquiring Sanskrit texts. He expanded the empire far into Central Asia, and he oversaw the production of a legal code that had far-reaching consequences, influencing Chinese legal thought and practice for centuries and shaping law codes in Vietnam, Korea, and Japan. Jack W. Chen, in his 2012 book The Poetics of Sovereignty, points out the lengths to which Taizong went to cultivate an image of himself as a virtuous ruler, a task enthusiastically taken up by subsequent generations of historians. In some accounts, Taizong, rather than his father Gaozu, is the true founder of the Tang. To be clear, Li Shimin, Taizong, is not the only villain of this story. His brothers had conspired to murder their father as well. Antagonism among the brothers had persisted for years, and Li Jiancheng had influenced Gaozu against naming Li Shimin his heir, despite evidence that he would have been the better choice. Yuan Ji had even resolved to murder Shimin but had been stopped by the eldest brother, who instead gave Shimin an unruly horse in hopes that he would be thrown. When Zhencheng and Yuanji made their fateful trip to see the emperor on the morning of July 2nd, conspiracy against Shimin was almost certainly their goal. Nonetheless, it's hard not to think that Taizong's success was the fruit of a poisonous tree. Not only did Taizong murder two of his brothers, one by his own hand, and overthrow his father's reign, but earlier in life he manipulated his father into adultery against the Sui dynasty, compelling the rebellion that led to the creation of the Tang. The Shakespearean dimensions of Li Shimin's life defy belief, and at the very least they call into question the idea of a just and moral ruler who built his reign on fratricide, treachery, and manipulation. Some at the time had the same view, Historian Valerie Hansen points to a legend, translated into English by Arthur Whaley in Ballads and Stories of Dunhuang, in which Taizong is summoned before the King of the Dead to account for his actions. In effect, Taizong's anti-filial actions are pardoned. In her overview of Chinese history, The Open Empire, Hansen suggests that Though there were few checks on the emperor in this world, popular belief held that the dead could be tried in the courts of the afterlife. The story translated by Whaley 
was written down less than a century after the Xuanwu Gate coup, suggesting that, very quickly, concerns were raised about the emperor's behavior. A moral exemplar, whose morals were far from exemplary. This week, much of China's historical energy is focused on the centennial of the Communist Party. There, too, we see an origin myth rearranged to fit subsequent developments. The 1921 National Congress of the Communist Party of China was just part of a complex foundation staged, literally if you visit the historical site in Xintiandi, to suggest that Mao Zedong, who was present but not central, led the party from its inception. Mao famously admired Qin Shi Huang, the first emperor of Qin, but he clearly learned some lessons from Tang Taizong. This Week in China's History, April 15, 1912. Titanic's six Chinese survivors tell a story that goes far beyond a shipwreck. It wasn't the world's deadliest shipwreck, but without question it is the most famous. The first book about the RMS Titanic appeared just months after the liner collided with an iceberg and sank to the bottom of the Atlantic Ocean taking some 1,500 souls with her, and the attention has not let up. More than 500 books have been published, in English alone, on the ship and its sinking, along with dozens of documentary and feature films. Certainly the best known of these is James Cameron's 1997 film Titanic, which was, for a time, the highest-grossing movie in history, and remains near the top of the list. In a deleted scene, one of the Titanic's lifeboats moves grimly through the wreckage, searching for survivors amid dozens of bobbing, half-frozen corpses. As the ship's crew calls out, a man floating on a piece of debris responds in Chinese. He is soon pulled aboard the lifeboat to safety. Even though the director-producer is reported to have gone to great lengths seeking historical accuracy, Cameron's film is a work of fiction. With that in mind, many viewers would be forgiven, had the scene made it into the final cut, for thinking the episode was a product of Cameron's imagination. And for that matter, a rather unlikely one, since what are the chances that there was a Chinese survivor on Titanic making its way from Britain to the United States? As it turns out, there wasn't one Chinese passenger on Titanic. There were eight. Six of them survived, including the man depicted in Cameron's deleted scene. That there were Chinese on Titanic was not altogether new information. Maritime historian Stephen Schwenkert has spent decades living in China, giving him the opportunity to dive on and research wrecks on the China coast. His research into the 1931 sinking of the British submarine Poseidon yielded a book and then a documentary film. His book, Jiang Ya, on the 1948 sinking of a Yangtze River ferry near Shanghai, a wreck that claimed more than twice as many lives as the sinking of Titanic, 
is forthcoming in May. But of course, anyone interested in history and shipwrecks will look into that fateful night in April 1912, and so did Schweikert, informed by his vantage point and experience in China. Schweikert found that eight Chinese passengers had boarded Titanic in Southampton, and that six of them, it seemed, had survived. Their names were recorded as Ah Lam, Fang Long, Len Lam, Cheng Fu, Chang Chip, Ling He, Li Bing, and Li Ling, though tracking down their names was itself a challenging journey. Schwenkert suggested the topic to film director Arthur Jones. They were working together on the documentary that would accompany Poseidon, but Jones demurred. Understandably, Jones doubted that there was anything new to say after 111 years about the ship that The Onion called the world's largest metaphor. Happily, Schwenkert persisted, and Jones relented. The result was a film called The Six. The film is available at a link on this story through April 19th that has shown that despite all the scrutiny, there is much new to learn. It is a good reminder that history is not the same as the past. Rather, history is produced by the interaction of past events, available sources about those events, and the questions that historians ask. Since the last two of these are constantly changing, history is itself continually evolving as new questions and new sources add to our understanding of the past. In this case, the sinking of the Titanic can provide new insights about the social history of early 20th century China and the racial policy and politics of the United States. All of this came together in the six. For those expecting another rehash of icebergs, hubris, and excess, Jones and Schwenkert's film presents something entirely different and much more, opening a window onto labor, politics, and migration. We could have picked any group of eight men from southern China, Schweikert told me in an interview, but by hanging the story on the Titanic peg, it gives the viewer instant context to understand where they are in both time and place. Like any good work of microhistory, The Six gives insights into the particulars of a specific moment, but uses that moment to illustrate and analyze broad trends and processes. The eight Chinese men were not migrants, but workers, professional seafarers, who had left southern China to find work in the United Kingdom and found employment firing the coal boilers that powered British sea power. But a month-long coal strike in 1912 sowed chaos in Britain's shipping industry, and these men were transferred to work in the Caribbean. Titanic was just their means of passage to New York. From there, they would catch a steamer to Cuba. At least, that was the plan. Remarkably, having survived the ordeal in the North Atlantic and been rescued to New York, the six survivors faced even more adversity. It was illegal for them to come to the United States because of the Chinese Exclusion Act. For those men, the sinking of the Titanic was just the beginning as they began new lives across the Atlantic. Some went to Canada, others back to Britain. Those who remained in the United States had to obscure their identity and hide the story of how they came to be there so they could claim legal immigration status, a travail not unique to survivors of celebrated shipwrecks. 
In some cases, Schwenkert's research team was able to confirm rumors for descendants of the six that their ancestors had in fact been aboard the Titanic. In other cases, the revelation was a shock. But for all of them, the story of Titanic was just a part of lives shaped by vast historical processes. Seeing what the men faced then in terms of exclusion laws and other difficulties, we know immediately that these problems have been around for more than a century, and that, therefore, they aren't going to be solved quickly, said Schwankert. But their story is one of hope. To them, the sinking of Titanic was just another obstacle to overcome. Surprisingly, perhaps for a film about such a well-known event, the narrative structure takes unexpected twists and deserves not to be spoiled. But I will let Stephen Schweikert tease it just a little. Of course, two of the men perished, leaving us with the six survivors for which the documentary is named. Those that lived always moved forward, overcoming each barrier as it presented itself. For many Titanic survivors, that was the worst moment of their lives. For these six men, it was just one more impediment. This Week in China's History, July 20th, 1967 The Problem with Mao's Continuous Revolution In the middle of the night of July 20th, 1967, it was already July 21st, Mao Zedong boarded a plane to fly out of Wuhan, spirited from the city by his closest advisors who feared for his safety. Mao was fleeing from what his supporters called a counter-revolutionary armed rebellion and a revolt against Chairman Mao. The threat, what political scientist Wang Shaoguang called one of the most crucial turning points in the Cultural Revolution, was not from foreign agents or political rivals, but from one of Mao's most reliable bases of support, the People's Liberation Army. It was the height of the Cultural Revolution, the maelstrom of ideology and conflict that enabled Mao to claw back power from the party he had ridden to victory in the Civil War. When Mao had called on his followers to bombard the headquarters, few could have imagined how completely his instructions would be followed. The party leadership had, almost to a man, been kicked to the curb, while Mao harnessed a cult of personality 
to order continuous revolution centered around his own ideology. Essential to understanding power in the People's Republic is the linkage between the Communist Party and the military. The Red Army was vital to Mao's ascent to power in the Long March, and again in his rehabilitation after the debacle of the Great Leap Forward. Indeed, the PLA was largely responsible for Mao's personality cult. Lin Biao, as defense minister, ensured that Mao's Little Red Book was distributed and revered throughout the military, helping to build a brand that transcended titles. The ties between the party and the army are so tight that it is difficult to imagine them separating, even at moments when the army is called on to use violence against the Chinese people, in June of 1989, for instance. But like so many aspects of Chinese politics and society, the Cultural Revolution turned those ties on their head. Mao and his supporters launched the Cultural Revolution with the command to bombard the headquarters, both literally and metaphorically, sources of authority came under attack. Students criticized and attacked their teachers. Party leaders' revolutionary credentials were questioned. Even Liu Shaoqi, the head of state, was forced from power and died in prison. Petitions were even collected to free people from the tyranny of stoplights, suggesting that, at the very least, red, not green, should mean go. The communist revolution had brought a new state into existence, but now that state was under attack from within as Mao urged ongoing or permanent revolution. The doctrine of permanent revolution has appeal, especially for those not in power, but it presents a paradox. Revolution intends to subvert or overturn the existing order, but if the revolution is permanent, then either there is nothing to overthrow or the revolution itself needs to be subverted. In any case, Power structures, hierarchies, are something to be overthrown. Hierarchies are also the essence of how a military carries out its mission. Here, Mao faced another, less abstract contradiction. His identity as a political leader was inseparable from his role as a military leader, not because he was a great general or a general at all, but because as chairman of the party, he controlled what became known as the People's Liberation Army. When Deng Xiaoping came to power after Mao's death, he eschewed most titles as he worked to build institutional rather than individual power. He was never head of state, but crucially, always retained his position as chairman of the Central Military Commission. The same has been true of every leader since. The Cultural Revolution had propelled Mao from forced retirement to new heights of personal and political power. The military had done the same. What was Mao to do when these two engines of his authority turned on one another? This is what happened in what came to be known as the Wuhan, or July 20th, incident. The work of the Cultural Revolution was being carried forward in Wuhan by two groups, each about half a million strong by the summer of 1967. The more radical organization was the Workers' General Headquarters, which had arisen out of the influx of Red Guards into the city as students and others began to move around China as part of the movement to share revolutionary experiences. This group, allied with workers, attempted to overthrow the local municipal government in Wuhan in early 1967. 
While it failed in this attempt, it continued to agitate and propagandize against power structures in Wuhan, including the military. The PLA, led by regional commander Chen Zaidao, had detained some 500 members of the Workers' General Headquarters, enraging the membership of the organization which saw, not without cause, the army as a counter-revolutionary force. Meanwhile, the military established its own popular organization, the Million Heroes. The two sides waged a propaganda war for the hearts and minds of Wuhan's people, which soon spilled over into physical violence. Statistics compiled by Wang Shaoguang, using sources from both sides, suggests that from April through June, there were hundreds of incidents involving tens of thousands of people, leaving hundreds dead and thousands injured. Seeking to defuse tensions, the top brass flew to Wuhan to mediate, including both Mao and Zhou Enlai. If the visit was intended to ease tensions, it backfired. On July 15th, learning that a delegation from Beijing had arrived, the radicals staged demonstrations to welcome their beloved chairman, taking the opportunity to taunt the million heroes and accuse them of counter-revolutionary activities. Violence followed. Ten people died, with more than 100 injured. The million heroes were better organized and better armed than the workers' headquarters and were in a much stronger position. Mao, though, had decided to back the more radical workers' headquarters, a fact finally made clear to the PLA leadership on July 18th when Zhou brought Chen Zaidao, the PLA leader, to meet with Mao himself. Mao declared that the million heroes, and by extension the PLA, would have to confess its errors. Rumors soon flowed out that the leadership had turned on the army. As Wang wrote in The Wuhan Incident Reconsidered, feeling among the members of the million heroes ran so high that only a single spark was needed to start a prairie fire. Local military units mobilized. On the morning of July 20th, some 200 supporters of the army burst into the guest house where high-level talks had been taking place. As rumors flew, the army took as many as 1,500 trucks into the center of the city to confront the workers' headquarters. Whoever dares touch a single hair of the million heroes, one unit wrote in a public declaration, we will wipe them out. Wuhan was now in full riot. As many as 1,000 people were killed, with many times more injured, but despite the chaos, the outcome was never in doubt. The PLA-backed million heroes quickly took control of the city. Mao, convinced that a counter-revolutionary mutiny was underway, fled the city, though there was never any direct threat to his safety. Wuhan was secure in the hands of the military, but not for long. In the following days, leaders of the million heroes were taken into custody, starting with Chen Zaidao who was brought to Beijing for a show trial. Within a week, the million heroes had been disbanded and the radicals given control of the city. Revenge killings followed, with 600 reportedly beaten to death. The army, which had brought Mao to power, had been brought low, violently. The radicals, once on the run, were now in power. The continuous revolution continued.
This week in China's history, winter, 208 to 209, the Battle of Red Cliffs and the blurring of fact and fiction. Sometime in the winter of 208 to 09 CE, in the waning days of the Han Dynasty, one of the greatest naval battles in history took place on the Yangtze River, somewhere in Hubei province. Even though the soldiers involved were almost certainly fewer than the 850,000 recorded, the massive engagement between the forces of Cao Cao, representing and perhaps usurping the decayed Han Dynasty, and those of Sun Quan and Liu Bei, has significance that extends far beyond the many thousands who died in the Yangtze Valley that winter. To begin with, let's be clear that placing the battle in mid-February is at best a guess. Sources agree that the engagement took place in winter, but not much more than that. That hasn't stopped the battle's story from being retold for nearly 2,000 years. Luo Guanzhong's 14th century novel, Romance of the Three Kingdoms, opens with the role of the battle in the unraveling of China's Qin Han First Unification. And in the 21st century, John Wu's two-part epic, Red Cliff, spends more than four hours depicting the battle. Needless to say, recounting events from 1,800 years ago is a challenge, and influential fictionalized accounts like Three Kingdoms and Red Cliff regardless of their accuracy, make it even harder. In cases like this, though, the accuracy of these stories becomes secondary. What matters is not so much whether a story is true or false, but what does it mean? Even what we know of the retellings is not always so. Many of us know that Luo Guanzhong opened his novel with the famous description, or was it prescription, of China's imperial history. The empire long divided must unite, long united must divide. Thus it has ever been. But he didn't. Scholars have established that this line was added several centuries later by editors, tying it to the Mingqing transition as the Manchus overran China. Its origins notwithstanding, the celebrated opening has become part of the standard edition of the novel and attained a timeless quality in many contexts. In the case of the Battle of Red Cliffs, many of the stories recounted have risen to the level of myth. Cinematically, the scenes are spectacular in Wu's hands, and dozens of top-shelf performances with Takeshi Kaneshiro's Zhuge Liang, Zhang Fengyi's Cao Cao, and Zhao Wei's Sun Shangxiang, among the best for my money. I can't compete with the literary art of the novel or the spectacle of the movie, but I'll outline the events that Luo, et al., and Wu brought to life. After nearly two centuries in power, including a brief interregnum under Wang Mang, the Han Dynasty was in decline at the end of the 2nd century CE. The emperors were mere shadows of the powerful early rulers, and the state administration was hardly able to govern. As central power ebbed, regional militarists filled the vacuum, sometimes appealing to the Han for legitimacy. One of the most powerful of these regional leaders was Cao Cao, an army captain of variable loyalties who first gained rank fighting against the Yellow Turban Rebellion of the 180s. In 200, after defeating a rival in the Battle of Guandu, 
Cao Cao came to rule most of North China. Rather than overthrow the Han, Cao leveraged his power to legitimize himself with the Han legacy. In the summer of 208, he compelled the emperor to appoint him as chancellor, though, in truth, the emperor served at Cao Cao's pleasure rather than the other way around. As chancellor, Cao Cao had political power that matched his military might. Holding sway over North China, he turned his focus south. The most prominent southern powers were Liu Bei and Sun Quan. Like Cao Cao, Liu Bei first gained his reputation fighting against the Yellow Turbans and had, in fact, been an ally of Cao Cao's in the late 190s. Liu Bei, however, came to see Cao Cao as a traitor to the Han and attempted to assassinate him at the behest of the emperor. After being defeated by Cao Cao's armies in the early 200s, Liu Bei fled south to regroup, but remained convinced that opposing Cao Cao represented loyalty to the Han. Liu Bei's principal advisor was Zhuge Liang, a military and diplomatic genius with a reputation for preternatural abilities. Tall and slender, usually carrying a fan made of crane feathers, going by the style name Kong Ming, Zhuge Liang persuaded Sun Quan to ally with Liu against Cao Cao. Most important to the alliance was Sun's fleet of ships on the Yangtze, hundreds of vessels that controlled the middle stretches of the river, half a mile wide or more, as the river wound its way through Hubei. Sun stated his intentions to fight by slashing his desk with a sword. Pointing to the piece lying on the floor, he declared that anyone who refused to fight would meet the same fate as the furniture. Sun Quan's slashing of the desk was just one of many episodes that have taken on the power of myth. Sun's forces lured Cao Cao's cavalry into an ambush and then decimated them using an ancient infantry formation. Running short on ammunition, Zhuge Liang staffed his ships with straw bales dressed as sailors. Drawing the enemy fire, thousands of arrows stuck to the bales and could be reused by his own archers. And later, Zhuge Liang predicted a shifting in the winds that would enable fire ships to plow into Cao Cao's fleet, setting them alight. What's more, Cao Cao's admirals had bound their ships to one another to stave off seasickness among the landlubber troops. The fleet burned. Amid the naval debacle, rumors that Liu Bei had abandoned his alliance with Sun Quan circulated to Cao Cao, who left his flank open only to have Liu Bei mount a surprise attack. Cao Cao's vessels sank, his troops routed. He barely survived. The legacy of the Battle of Red Cliffs was enormous. Cao Cao remained in control of the north, but his ambitions to conquer southern China were confounded. Each of the combatants established their own state. Cao Cao proclaimed his Wei kingdom in the north. Liu Bei claimed the legacy of the fallen Han dynasty with his later Han, Shu Han dynasty in the southwest. Sun Quan ruled over most of what is today China south of the Yangtze, including the coastal provinces, as the state of Wu. It would be another 300 years before, to paraphrase the romance, long divided the empire united.